Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnerless. Just recently, I went to the movie theater in my town where they were showing a Christmas story again. And I consider myself very lucky because this is the second time that I've seen A Christmas Story in the theaters. I actually got to see A Christmas Story the weekend it came out, way back in 1983. My entire family had gone, and we were rolling in the aisles, just laughing about everything in it. We didn't really look around to realize that there were very few other people in the theater. That Monday, I went to school thinking, this hilarious movie must have been seen by everyone. And I started quoting it. I would say things like, you'll shoot your eye out, and... I double-dog dared people to do things and talked about the flagpole scene. Nobody knew what I was talking about. I tried to explain there's this great movie, A Christmas Story. Nothing. I think I became the number one cheerleader for this movie at the time. I think I managed to convince a couple of my friends that they should see this, but by the time their families got around to wanting to take them, the movie had disappeared from theaters. So I was left with this memory of a movie that nobody else in my town had seen. Luckily, cable came around, and I would eventually be vindicated by just about everybody else who came to realize what an instant classic A Christmas Story is. On today's show, we're going to talk about A Christmas Story. We're going to talk a little bit about the background behind it, how it came to be. We'll talk about the movie itself, talk about the cast, the locations, its soaring popularity over the years, and some other fun stuff. As always, we have an info-packed episode for you, so without further ado, let's start the show.
the late 1960s, the man who would come to direct A Christmas Story, Bob Clark, was driving to a date's house when an interesting radio personality came on the radio. His name was Gene Shepard. Gene Shepard at that point was probably most famous for his broadcasts on WOR in the New York, New Jersey area. In that radio broadcast, Shepard would talk about his times growing up in Indiana in the late 30s and early 40s. Clark was entranced and had one of those moments where you can't get out of the car because the radio is so intriguing and wound up driving around for an hour glued to the program. At that point, he knew he wanted to make a movie out of those stories. Of course, Clark's career was still nowhere at that point, so there was not really any chance of that happening, but he kept it in his mind. The teller of those stories, Gene Shepard, would have those stories eventually printed in Playboy magazine and finally be collected in a 1966 book called In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. I can't tell whether the Lawrence Welk Show is to the highest development of camp or Fellini is right, the world is a madhouse. I can't tell. I mean, here, here, I, I, I watched this scene one night when, when this girl came out. I, I like to watch it occasionally just for, you know, because it's such a, a wild, strange thing to watch. Uh, uh, out came this girl, and she's dressed in this long gown. They always wear long gowns on that show, right up to their gizzard, you know. They don't, there's no such thing as a, as a bosom on that show, Dad. And Lawrence Wilkes says, uh, he says, and now uh, we have a favorite tuna of all of you out there, uh, and it's a tune that all of you have been writing in and then asking for. We want you to listen now as little Lesbia O'Toole sings a favorite old melody that all of you have loved from many, many years. Beautiful Ohio. One, a two, a three. And she goes, Beautiful Ohio. And I'm thinking this, you know, and I think any minute now, you know, they're going to go into the, you know, spike joint. Da, 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 da. No, they go all the way through it. And, and, and then there'd be shots of the audience. They're looking so benign. And, uh, I thought, holy smokes. You know, maybe there is something to this generation gap after all. Now, it could have easily ended there, with Shepard's stories being printed and being moderately successful, and Clark, working in the entertainment industry, continually dreaming about how to make these stories into a film. But then one of those lucky breaks happened. Clark would find some success in film. He directed a movie called Porky's, which is a teen B movie that became a box office hit. Suddenly, he had some clout. The studios came to him and said, we really want you to make a sequel to this Porky's. Clark said, sure, I'll do that, no problem. But I want to do this Gene Shepard project first. That Gene Shepard project would be a Christmas story. In this modern age, Perfect. too many people have lost sight of the true meaning of Christmas. Mom! Hush! Shut up, Ralphie! So now, in the spirit of the original... Me to you! Stop! Tradition... American Christmas. Thanks a lot! MGM presents A Christmas Story. Ah! Uncle! 
Chile. That must be Italian. I think that's just fragile. A Christmas story. Come on! The movie that pulls off Santa's beard. And unwraps the secrets. Did they get a tie this year? Of the original, traditional. He looks like a deranged Easter bunny. 100% two fisted, red blooded. It's smiling at me. All American Christmas. A Christmas story. The movie was released on November 18, 1983, and it wasn't a huge success. I guess you could call it a moderate success for the time. It brought in $2 million that weekend. The problem was that there was no good word of mouth because critics were really divided on how to perceive this movie. Some thought it was a masterpiece right from the get-go. Others thought, well, it's a moderately good holiday film. A big problem was that people were looking at the movie through the lens of the director. They saw Bob Clark as a sort of B-movie director and couldn't see a movie that he would make that could transcend the work he had done before, namely Porky's. Another big problem was that two other big movies opened up at the same time, Scarface and Christine. So almost as quickly as it appeared, A Christmas Story disappeared from movie theaters. All things totaled, it would bring in $19 million at the box office, which is pretty decent, but not the mega hit that we would expect from the amount of viewing it gets nowadays. It would be in the secondary market on television and video that A Christmas Story would really break through. The film would show up first on television on HBO during the mid-80s, and that is where most of my friends got to see it, and where... Happily, I was vindicated in my opinion of the film because as soon as it started showing up on HBO, it became very quotable. And almost every one of my friends came to school the next day after having seen it, quoting the film incessantly. Starting in the late 80s and early 90s, the film started to get built into the holiday season, being shown usually on the night of or the night after Thanksgiving to open the holiday television season. It would be shown on WTBS, WGN, even Fox. All the while, the film's popularity grew on video, eventually on DVD. And in 1997, TNT began airing a 24-hour marathon that they called 24 Hours of a Christmas Story. What this was was the film shown 12 consecutive times, beginning at 7 or 8 p.m. on Christmas Eve and ending 24 hours later on Christmas Day. Add that to all the other channels that were showing it, and Christmas Story was all over the place between Thanksgiving and Christmas. In 2004, TNT switched to a drama format, and its sister network, TBS, took over the marathon. And it's a huge ratings draw for TBS. Every year, millions of people tune in to watch the marathon, and it still continues to this day. In 2009, the 24-hour marathon is scheduled to continue for its 13th year, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Christmas Eve. After these messages, we'll be right back. Next, how to make chocolate milk without making a mess. <laughs> Bye, Marvin. Messy Marvin's more like it. For delicious chocolate milk and no mess. One, I always use thick, rich Hershey syrup. Two, stir well. And three, it's always delicious. 
So remember. Oh, Marvin. Good old-fashioned Hershey syrup in the no-mess bottle. It's delicious. As I mentioned, the plot of A Christmas Story is taken directly from the short stories and anecdotes of Gene Shepard. Specifically, it pulls from the book In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, and Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. The film's plot is set in the fictional city of Homan, Indiana, which is based on the real-life city of Hammond, Indiana, which is where Gene Shepard hails from. Right from the get-go, we are told that this little boy, Ralphie Parker, wants one thing for Christmas. An official Red Rider carbine-action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing which tells time. The whole story revolves around him trying to convince his parents that this is the perfect gift for him. And the whole film deals with his attempt to get that Red Rider BB gun. He tries to go through his parents. He tries to go through his teacher. He even goes to a questionable department store Santa Claus. Almost invariably, the answer is the same from all of them. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Of course, the movie ends on Christmas Day. Kids wake up, run down to the tree, and it seems that Ralphie has not gotten his dream gift. But, after all the presents have been opened, the person who seems the least likely to have given him his gift suddenly comes through for him, and he gets his Red Rider BB gun. Of course, he takes the gun outside to target practice, and then shoots his eye out. Okay, Black Bart, now you get yours. <laughs> There's lots of other fun subplots right at the end there. You get one that's great where there's these hounds that live next door to the Parker family, and they come in and steal the Christmas turkey, forcing the family to go out for Chinese food that night. At the end of the movie, Ralphie is lying in bed, clutching his gun, while a voiceover, supplied by Gene Shepard, tells us how that was the greatest present he had ever received or would ever receive. A beautiful ending. But the fun doesn't stop there. The movie is filled with fun little subplots. There's lots of other little details about the Parker life that make this movie just magical. There's the Battle of the Lamp, which has Old Man Parker winning a leg lamp from Neha, you know, the soda people. And being proud, he wants to put this right in the front window of the Parker home. Mrs. Parker, not very happy with this giant leg in her window, breaks the lamp. Hilarity ensues. You use up all the glue! On purpose! You have the battle between Flick and Schwartz, where Flick sticks his tongue to a flagpole in the middle of winter, and it gets stuck, which actually happened in my hometown a couple of years before I was going to school. You have a story about Ralphie wanting the Little Orphan Andy secret society decoder pin and finding out that it was all just about a commercial. You have subplots with bullies picking on the kids and Ralphie finally fighting back. You have Ralphie cursing and the consequences of cursing. And of course the film is filled with three great daydream sequences. One where Ralphie uses his gun to fight off the criminals in the neighborhood. Another where he is blinded from having to have his mouth washed out with soap. And a third where he is the greatest theme writer in the history of his classroom. There was a fourth Daydream sequence filmed where Ralphie helps Flash Gordon fight Ming the Merciless. I'm sure for good reason it didn't make it into the film. But there are remnants of it if you look at the credits at the end of the film. 
Ming the Merciless and Flash are, are still in it. It's amazing how much they were able to put into a 93-minute film, but it just goes to show you how well-written and well-layered the film is. We'll return after these messages. Yes, it's Nessie Marvin. No matter how hard he tries... Oh, Marvin! He always makes a mess. Except when he makes his chocolate milk. He uses good old-fashioned Hershey syrup in the no-mess bottle. Great-tasting, thick, rich chocolate flavor that Hershey always delivers without making a mess. Excellent. Uh, Marvin. Delicious Hershey syrup in the no-mess bottle. A great story can only bring you so far. A Christmas Story also happens to have a great cast. The main character was Ralphie Parker, as played by Peter Billingsley. Peter Billingsley was actually the first choice to play the role of Ralphie, but Bob Clark had thought it might be too obvious and went through the casting process before he realized that the obvious choice was the right one. Billingsley was already a minor TV celebrity doing some co-hosting work on the TV series Real People and playing Messy Marvin in a bunch of Hershey's chocolate syrup commercials. Gene Shepard, the writer of the story, had a great voice. He was on radio a lot. So he was brought on to be the narrator of the film. He also makes a brief on-screen cameo in the film. In the department store where the kids try to cut in line, he is the guy who says the line ends there. It starts back there. You can hear the voice if you pay attention to it. It's very obvious once you know what you're looking for. Bob Clark, the director of the film, also makes a brief cameo in the movie. He plays Swede, the guy who Ralphie's old man is talking to when he's trying to get the leg lamp aligned properly in the front window of the house. The role of the old man, or Mr. Parker, they never actually give the names of Mr. and Mrs. Parker, is played by Darren McGavin. But Darren McGavin wasn't necessarily the one who was going to get the role. The role might have gone to Jack Nicholson, but it turns out that Jack Nicholson was just a little too expensive for the movie. And the role would go to Darren McGavin, which made Clark happy because McGavin had already appeared in other Clark projects. He also was in Kolchak the Night Stalker. What a great show. Melinda Dillon, who had been in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, as well as Slapshot, would play Mrs. Parker, Ralphie's mom. Right before filming began, they managed to pick up Ian Petrella, who would play Ralphie's younger brother, Randy Parker. There is this great scene when they're in the department store waiting to get up to Santa, and there's this bizarre kid who's played by David Svoboda. He's the one wearing aviation goggles who says, I like Santa, I like the Wizard of Oz. And Ralphie just looks at him. That whole scene, you really should watch Ian Petrella. Because he doesn't say a word, but his eye movement and facial expressions are just classic and really well done. Always makes me very happy. Rounding out the cast, you had Teddy Moore as Miss Shields, whose clothes needed to be padded out to take on that schoolmarm appearance. You had... Scott Schwartz as Flick. He's the one who sticks his tongue on the flagpole. You have... R.D. Robb as Schwartz, oddly enough. And although he thinks he gets away with coaxing Flick to stick his tongue on the flagpole, Justice catches up to him when Ralphie blames him for the curse word that he uttered. And Justice comes down on him pretty hard in the scene you hear on the phone. You have Zach Ward as Scott Farkas, the neighborhood bully. You have uh, Yano Anaya as Grover Dill, who was Scott's toady. And finally, you have Jeff Gillen as a terrifying Santa Claus who basically puts the nail in the coffin on Ralphie's hopes of getting a Red Ryder BB gun. An amazing cast brought together. It was difficult for a movie that was set in the 30s and 40s to 
be filmed in the early 80s. So director Bob Clark sent location scouts to 20 cities before finally selecting Cleveland, Ohio as the principal site for filming. Although some other filming was done in St. Catharines in Ontario, Canada and in Toronto, Canada. Higby's was used for three scenes in the movie, including the famous visit to Santa. Higby's actually kept that Santa slide and would use it for several years after the release of the movie. Sadly, Higby's became Dillard's in 1992 and then in 2002 was closed down for good. Now, Higby's was something that exists only in Northeast Ohio, so there would have been no Higby's in Hammond, Indiana, where Shepard grew up. The department store that he was probably talking about when he referred to a department store in his stories was Goldblatt's, which was located in downtown Hammond, three doors down from the referenced Chinese restaurant in the movie. Take the whole The exterior shots of the house and the neighborhood where Ralphie lived were filmed in the Tremont section of Cleveland's west side. The house that was used in these scenes has been restored and reconfigured inside to match the soundstage interiors and has been opened to the public as the Christmas Story house. So if you're ever in Cleveland, it's definitely something you should go check out. The movie is probably set around 1939-1940. A lot of the art direction points to that. But there are things that are out of place. For example, the Bing Crosby and Andrew sisters recording of Jingle Bells and Santa Claus is Coming to Town were both recorded in 1943. There's a reference to a pitcher named Bullfrog who was traded. That trade did not happen until 1946. And some of the cars that you see in the background are actually from the late 40s as opposed to the early 30s, early 40s. Still, there's more than enough things in the movie that will point to 1939, 1940. Things like the Wizard of Oz and the vehicle that the Parkers themselves drove. One of the most important things in the movie is the Red Rider BB gun itself, and that was available beginning in 1938 and is still available today. But the exact configuration that is in the film never happened. There was a BB gun, the Daisy Buck Jones model, that did have a compass and a sundial in the stock but those features were never included in the Red Rider model. The compass and the sundial were placed on the BB gun that was used in the movie, but they were placed on the opposite side of the stock because Peter Billingsley is left-handed. Oh, you might not know this, but a sequel was made for A Christmas Story called My Summer Story. It was alternatively titled It Runs in the Family and it was made in 1994. The story still revolved around the lives of the Parker family, but instead of Christmas, it's about summer vacation. Only two members of the original Christmas Story cast returned, Teddy Moore to play Mrs. Shields again, and Gene Shepard as the narrator. Ralphie would be played by Kieran Culkin. The old man would be played by Charles Grodin. Mary Steenburgen would play the mother, and Little Randy would be played by Christian Culkin. It's not a great movie in that it doesn't capture any of the originality and that warm nostalgia that A Christmas Story captures. Even Jim Shepard admitted that the movie was, and I quote, a real turkey. A series of television movies involving the Parker family, also from Shepard's stories, was made by PBS, and those stories included Ollie Hopnoodle's Haven of Bliss, The Great American Fourth of July, and other disasters and The Phantom of the Open Hearth. In 2000, an authorized stage play adaption of A Christmas Story was written by Philip Grecian and has been produced widely each Christmas season since. 
In 2003, Broadway Books published the five Gene Shepard short stories from which the movie and stage play were adapted in a single volume under the title A Christmas Story. And the book includes Duel in the Snow, or Red Rider Nails the Cleveland Street Kid, The Counterfeit Secret Circle Member Gets the Message, or The Asp Strikes Again, My Old Man and the Lascivious Special Award That Heralded the Birth of Pop Art, Grover Dill and the Tasmanian Devil, and the grandstand passion play of Delbert and the Bumpus Hounds. The collection would also be released as an audiobook. Sadly, it would not be read by Gene Shepard, who passed away, but was instead read by Dick Cavett. A Christmas Story has been chosen by many modern publications as the number one Christmas movie of all time, and I have a tendency to agree with them. The movie is filled with laughs, some great nostalgia, some amazing acting that brings me back every year and leaves me wanting more. I can sit through six or seven showings of it on Christmas Day, just having it on in the background. And at the end of it, I'll be like, ah, I don't think I'll watch this again next year. Bam. As soon as Christmas rolls around again, I'm all over that. When I saw it in the theater recently, people were laughing like they had just seen it for the first time. It's got that sort of power. It's a classic holiday movie that has become a part of the American pop cultural landscape, and it won't be going away anytime soon. And that's just fine with me. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. Christopher Tupa, who usually does the art for the Retroist podcast, has the week off. But if you still need your Christopher Tupa fix, why not drop by his website at ctupa.com. That's C-T-U-P-A dot com. If you like A Christmas Story and other holiday movies, why not drop by the Retroist forums? That's right, we have a forum at www.retroist.com slash forum. Drop by there, tell me your memories of your favorite Christmas movie, and share some of your favorite quotes from A Christmas Story. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.